0: highways voices the podcast of highways news your one-stop destination for all the news about the highways and transport technology industries and our must-read daily newsletter
1: hello again and welcome to another highways voices thanks for joining us again for more chat with thought leaders from the industry
0: and today we talk mapping and location data with two guests what we see is that customers have all integrated maps and routing and search and things like that into their applications and they're now looking for something more differentiated, more specific to them, more specific to their use case. I
2: think less than a year, we're going to be looking at the performance of our road network every single day from sensors that we're collecting from vehicles.
0: If they could hold up their phone and kind of scan the houses in the street and actually see an arrow pointing to the one that they have to be at. I think we're sitting
2: at a time now where collecting data has never been easier, but understanding that data, I think that's where the challenge is. For the next half hour, this is the place to be. This is Highways Voices. Highways Voices,
0: the podcast from highwaysnews.com. So
1: I'm Paul Hutton, joined by my colleague here at Highways News, Adrian Tatum. We're the people behind your daily briefing about all that's going on in the highways and transport technology industry here in the UK, plus the big stories from around the world. Now, if you don't get our daily briefing every lunchtime, you can subscribe using the link with this podcast. And, Adrian, people signing up here are sure to get stories of interest. Because if you're working in highways and transport technology, we always seem to have something worth reading.
3: Yeah, well, you know, delivering straight to people's inboxes six days a week, Monday to Friday, and a roundup on Saturday really means that we can deliver the news that people don't have to find themselves. News that's really spiked in interest this week: Costain getting to start the uh, M6 smart motorway project, despite criticism for smart motorways that have been in the media for the last two weeks, and of course. Many of the companies in the sector are celebrating um, National Apprentice Week, including Tarmac and uh, Transport for London, who have committed to taking on uh, over 100 new apprentices from September.
1: And there's more on Smart Motorways on our site, with the survey that we ran suggesting a startling number of people just don't understand them which means the forthcoming tv campaign to explain can't come too soon uh, other things i've put on that i think have been interesting we've got uh, some interesting stuff from a webinar i was involved in with its uk and its australia where the modeling company aimson explained their training tool for control room operators that's being used on a smart motorway in australia uh, that's well worth a read and in fact a watch while we also have got the latest on how apple are and aren't doing in their driverless car development because it changed within hours of me putting one story on. We then had to put another one on to update it. And we've also got, and I really like this one, a heartwarming story about guide dog training too. We all love animal stories and so this one is well worth having a click on. Uh, There really is something for everyone on Highways News.
3: Yes, uh, also this week Jacobs were awarded the Lower Thames Crossing Contracts and there seems to be a real focus because of the severe weather at the moment on lots of councils delivering extra funding for roads for this year and moving forward lincolnshire county council committing an extra 10 million to repair the roads as well as money for flooding and drainage so yeah a real focus on on the road sector at a really exciting time
0: highways voices with paul hutton and adrian
1: tatum We'll hear more from Adrian shortly when he talks to the CEO of Gaist. But first, let's talk digital mapping. Now, a couple of years ago, I went to the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas and visited the huge stand of mapping company here. The sheer scale of the projects they were involved in showed just how important location is to our daily lives. Now, obviously, there wasn't a physical event this year, but here still released plenty of new innovations. So I spoke to Chief Product Officer Jorgen Berry, and asked him first about their new mapping as a service offering
0: as you know here has been making maps itself for something like 30 years in first as Navtech, later later as Nokia and now as, as here technologies and we've developed a large amount of say capabilities for that uh, tooling uh, processes validation techn- um, um, methods but also, let's say, skills and uh, relationships with um, with a data supplier ecosystem. In the last couple of years, we have introduced a, a platform that developers and data scientists can use to develop their own geospatial applications. And what we're noticing is that a lot of our customers are sitting, enterprise customers are sitting on a lot of location data, troves of location data, and are looking for ways to monetize that and to make use of it in a kind of differentiating way in their own business. And so what we've done is we're gradually exposing our map making uh, capabilities in our platform so that customers can use the platform to ingest their own location data, uh, process it into location content, so make maps with it. Those maps can be maps of their own private part of the world, a yard or a distribution center or a port or a mine or some kind of you know private space, or they can be additions to our map that that, uh, add private attribution or, let's say, specific features to our map that they can then consume in conjunction with the here map. And the intention is that uh, over time, everything you can do with with our map in our platform is also going to be possible with private maps and also the combination of here maps and private maps. So you might think of customers who add attribution to the map that they then use, in, for example, uh, in our routing algorithm.
1: That makes a lot of sense. And does it mean, for example, just one practical um, suggestion that one practical issue that uh, delivery companies have where I live is for reasons that I don't quite understand, my home has a name rather than a house number. So along the street where I live are just random names with no alphabetical or any sense to them at all. So often I will see delivery drivers driving up and down the road looking for uh, locations or looking for house names. uh, And then the ones that come regularly start to get to know where all of them are so when your regular drivers turn up they know where you are would would a delivery company be able to add that sort of extra level of data that isn't on a usual map of of specifics like house names to make their own map and their own services more efficient
0: yeah that's absolutely an example so the uk has a a little bit of a different uh, house addressing system, house numbering system, than most other countries in the sense that they are not typically sequential, not always sequential. And uh, uh, indeed, as you say, um, some houses have a name. I used to live in a house with a name as well, so I know what you mean. But this is absolutely a, 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 an example. But other examples might include, you know, parking spots or zones where the drivers are kind of uh, allowed to stop or not stop. And there are many, many other such examples. So the idea is that essentially the capabilities that that, that we've created for our own map making are exposed to customers and that they can use it to complement the data that they buy from here and actually consume it in the same services that they buy from here.
1: When you think about it, just about everything now is location based. When you look on your phone, almost every app has some sort of knowledge of location on there and kind of here, I guess, and and the other mapping companies are the unsung heroes of this because you've, you've produced the ingredients that allow these apps to actually provide such great uh, convenience for, to people's lives. But nobody ever stops to think of the sheer amount of work that goes into creating the map that underpins everything else that the app is built on.
0: Yeah, it's very true. Everything is location specific. Everything has a location context. Most apps on your phone have have location capabilities. And indeed, these are generally supplied by one of the very few companies, including ourselves, that actually build global maps and have also built services on top of the maps that that allow them to be consumed more easily by developers. To kind of make the connection to the private mapping topic we just discussed, What we see is that customers have all integrated maps and routing and search and things like that into their applications. And they're now looking for something more differentiated, more specific to them, more specific to their use case. And they're trying to find ways to use their own their own location data to achieve that. And that's exactly what we're trying to um, make possible. Lots of innovations. A couple of others that I've picked
1: out that I just wanted to pick up on. Because, of course, you're talking about mapping and, and, and apps and therefore privacy is so important. And uh, you've got this consent manager and anonymizer products. Um, explain to me a bit more
0: about how they're working. Location data is almost always privacy sensitive and typically covered by GDPR and other regulations that apply to uh, personally identifiable information. Because we are a platform that companies use to process location data and because we also have a data marketplace in, in which our customers can buy and sell location data, we need to make sure that obviously everyone needs to and wants to comply with regulations, and we're trying to make it easier to do so. So we've created functionality that customers can use to have traceability of consent, the ability to prove that consent has been obtained for particular use cases, but also technology that they can use to to kind of run their data sets through the platform to anonymize them, to take out sufficient amounts of data points so that they can never be reconstructed in such a way that you could identify the actual user
1: and finally another thing that i really love is the fact that in the past when i first started using digital mapping it was very much 2d point on the map and then slowly the intelligence started to be added in so if you had two roads you understood whether they intersected on the map or whether one was actually a bridge over the other etc etc and so much richer data was added into layers of the map now you've got 3d mapping i'm looking at a graphic on the highways news website of a of a city mapped in 3d here is it just to look good or are you actually now able to map the particular
0: floor in a building it's both so looking you know the kind of graphic appeal and uh, entertainment value is uh, for sure an, an aspect, but we see really three important use cases for three D city level data that we are now providing and that will be expanding also over over time. One is the kind of next generation in in dash navigation systems and infotainment systems that, that provide a much more visually compelling and and also in some cases clearer representation of reality by rendering in three D, making use also of uh, display technology that's able to create three D effects. In that case. A lot of it is about looking good, but we also see use cases in consumer applications, often around augmented reality and virtual reality, where apps are starting to integrate AR and VR capabilities so that users can interact with the 3D world around them, essentially. And the third use case, which is a more serious and efficiency-driven one, is actually the last meter guidance for delivery services you mentioned an example earlier where drivers were starting uh, trying to look for your house wouldn't it be even better if they could li- if they could hold up their phone and kind of scan the houses in the street and actually see an arrow pointing to the one that they have to be at or they go into a bigger building or apartment complex to be able to identify with um, augmented reality which which uh, floor which uh, place they actually are delivering to those are the use cases and we see tremendous uh, demand now for this uh, this 3D mapping technology and all sorts of other geospatial computing use
1: cases. As I said, when you think about how the highways and transport technology industries have innovated over the years, so much of it has been location-based. So Jorgen Behrens, here's Chief Product Officer, is definitely a man worth listening to. Now you're listening to Highways Voices from Highways News. I just want to remind you we're on all the main podcast platforms, so that's Apple and Spotify, Google, Amazon Music, Overcast and Pocketcast. So please do subscribe on whichever platform you use and you'll never miss an edition. The link is on this podcast and on the Highways News website. Highways Voices, the podcast from highwaysnews.com. highwaysnews.com. So we've heard from here, but what can you do with such powerful mapping tools? Adrian caught up with Steve Birdsall, CEO of highway technology company Gaist, which has been mapping roads to provide more accurate condition data to help prioritise maintenance, work and spending. But Adrian asked, just how far we can take this
2: in the future. I don't think there's any real limits, to be honest. I don't think it's escaped anybody. The pace of change around data collection, sensors, computing, we've got artificial intelligence now, they're all growing in terms of capacity capability. I guess it's just our imagination really that limits what we can do. There's still a long way to go. You know, I mean, we've got all of this capability growing, but it still needs to be bolted together and still needs to be brought to bear on a lot of problems. But if you were to look forward another five years, I believe that we won't be able to recognise the the way that we do things now will look stone age in comparison to what we're doing in in five years' time. Data, data engineering, AI, it's set to change everything. And I can't see that change stopping. And I think the the, the rate of change will just steadily increase as as this capability is brought to bear.
3: How close are we going to be to be able to provide road operators with real-time information on the state
2: of their network? Real-time information is going to come from sensors. Now, there's two ways you can deploy sensors. You can deploy them at fixed locations, and you need a lot of fixed locations if you look at the network as a whole across the whole country, or you can get them from cars. And I, I believe it's going to be cars that give us that data because cars are on the network all the time. They're driving around. They're experiencing the road. They're experiencing the tyre hits the the, rubber hits the road You know, every second across probably millions of cars at the same time all across the country. So it's the obvious place to start. And, and in fact, this year we'll be looking at how we can use that candidate kind of and launching a number of different services around that. But like I said before, you know, we're just at the beginning with this kind of technology. Sensor data, the Internet of Things, that's the connection of devices and sensors to the Internet, are going to open up all sorts of uh, new technologies and new capabilities that hitherto we've, we would have been science fiction. So I don't think we're far away. And in fact, I think less than a year We're going to be looking at the performance of our road network every single day from sensors that we're collecting from vehicles. So we're very close, Adrian.
3: And how does that change
2: what we do from the
3: survey? So you've got the traditional road condition data that you've spent the past decade building up with local authorities around the country. That's enabled them to prioritise their works more effectively and more efficiently. But how does real-time data bring those real benefits for them in the future?
2: It's certainly in the, in the short term, the kind of detail that you need from the kind of surveys that we do. If you're going to drive maintenance programs, look at different treatments and products, et cetera, you're really not going to get away from, from doing almost a forensic survey of the road at least once a year if you want that kind of resolution. The data that you'll get from cars, I guess, or from other kinds of sensors will show you where change is happening, show you relative difference. So if you're starting to see a road fail, You'll see that early on. You won't wait for another year until you start to see box of deterioration. You'll be able to see that coming through a lot earlier. So that will allow local authorities to react quicker. But of course, it's not just condition data that we need to be worried about. I mean, we do other things with the road. Roads, For example, winter maintenance. Where do we grit roads? How effective is that gritting? What about drainage? Is the, is the road draining water away the way it should do? I've got standing water, which is a hazard. You know, these are things that are very transient. And I think sensor data from vehicles or from from other technologies, maybe cameras that fix somewhere, that's going to be able to feed back that information that about the road as it changes characteristics in terms of, like I said, rain, maybe heat, maybe if we put a new treatment down, are we seeing early life skid resistance? Those are the kind of very transient problems that I think we'll be able to. I have a much greater understanding from from capitalising on, on sensors that are, are as I say, are born on vehicles or at fixed points on the network.
3: And there's been a lot of talk recently about using more surface treatments as an early preventative method, as, a, as opposed to a reactive method. How, how is this sort of data and this sort of information going to help with that?
2: From the point of view of using preventative treatments, really, I think I don't think it's going to come from mobile data particularly. I think it's probably more from the kind of forensic analysis that we, that, that the likes of ourselves do as we, as we drive around. And that's a very important point. I think in the past, in fact, currently, you know, there are systems that would look at a road and express it as a red, amber, green, you know, so, so good, sort of average and, and end of life, maybe. That's far too coarse if you're going to try and intersect the point and the deterioration curve where those kind of preventative treatments are coming at a valuable time some of these treatments are, they're not very good uh, if you put them down on roads that have degraded too much you need to apply them at a point where the road is still very sound so we need to be able to chart the deterioration curve to quite a high degree of accuracy if we're going to intervene into the network at that crucial time when those products are going to give you the most effect and be able to extend the life cycle of a of a road again it, this comes back down to data doesn't it i mean there's a spectrum At one end of the spectrum, as I said, there's that very high detailed forensic analysis that we do by traversing the network once a year with all our equipment and everything else. I don't think it's going to be a replacement for that for, for the short term. But at the other end of the spectrum, we've got the ability now to start looking at the road in real time from cars, et cetera. And I think really it's it, there are points along in that spectrum where certain technologies will give you the right kind of answers. And I think that's always going to be the case. I think there's going to be a, a toolbox of things that we need as, as network managers to be able to sift the wood from the trees and make the kind of decisions that we need to make. I guess making decisions that we can now understand the outcomes of so we can now look at the long-term implications of of lots of these decisions anymore. So if we choose to use a new material through the kind of data that we can get back from, from cars, etc., we can see how it's performing and we can see how it performs for the long term. And then we can feed that back into the people who make those products or into the contractors that lay them. Workmanship issues, you know, if we've laid it in the wrong temperatures, we'll be able to see if that, how that's affecting the, the longevity of those materials. So data Types of data collection, sensors, the kind of information we get back and from, from, as I said, from the likes of cars, all of this will be coming together. And I think that's where the real challenge is. Collecting data has never been as easy. I mean, I can go to a, to a filling station and buy a dash cam, which essentially collects me data of the road service. I can point it down at the road and I can see pictures of it. And that's easy. There's lots of new apps that you can put in windows and one thing and another that make it cheap and, and easy to collect certain types of data. But the real challenge, I think, is how we look at that data, how we process that to give us information, and how we make that information insightful, and how we can then drive that or connect that to decision-making. And then once we've made those decisions, how we then close the loop by looking at what the implications of those decisions are. That's where the real intelligence is. Now, sadly, artificial intelligence, despite its name, is not very good at context, is not good, good at nuancing out these kind of problems. That's really still for humans to do. So I think we're sitting at a time now where collecting data has never been easier, but understanding that data, I think that's where the challenge is. And I think that's where new technologies, new processes, et cetera, will need to be developed now to catch up. And I often say about AI, in many ways, that AI is a really good mechanized way of finding needles in A-stacks. But what we're doing now is we're looking at millions of A-stacks, and then we end up with an A-stack of needles, so what do we do with that? And I think it's that's the challenge as we move forward. As, as always with technology, it takes us so far and then we have to invent something else to take us that next stage. And I think we're soon going to be moving into that next stage of trying to find insight from the kind of data that we're collecting.
3: And how can the data you've collected from the condition data and also the assets around that surface condition add to that? What you've just been describing with the real-time data What, what does that bring local authorities in terms of benefits moving forward
2: bringing together the surface assets condition the layout of roads the kind of data that here are collecting when you bring all that together you start to understand the roadscape and the context of the road and that's important because safety for example is very contextual You might have a defect in one location that represents absolutely no risk at all, but put the same defect in a different location with a different set of surroundings, it could be very dangerous. So understanding the context of a road is really, really important. Now, that's even more so when we start to look at driverless cars, connected autonomous vehicles, et cetera, where the one that, as I mentioned before, the one thing that AI is not very good at is context, is is understanding the nuances of certain situations when you've got lots of different factors coming together if it was good at that, we, they, they literally would be driving our cars now. They'd be driving our trains and they'd be flying our aircraft, but they're not. That's where human intelligence is very different from artificial intelligence. So the more of that information that we can collect and the more that we can start to understand that in an automated way, the more we'll be able to advance the, the new types of technology that are coming to the fore. But there is a job for that data today. And, and as I said before, really, I think the, the real big win is, is uh, when you understand the full context of a road, is that um, risk management piece? Making roads safer by understanding um, the, the, the surroundings, uh, the context, how different defects uh, are, are where they're dangerous, where they're not, what should be fixed first, what can you leave for a little while? Because we can't fix everything, obviously. You know, with there are defects in the network that can appear overnight, particularly in the kind of weather we've got now when we've got lots of snow and ice. Um, we we can see a sharp impairment in road surface, in the road surface. Um, but so where do we go first? Where do, what do we attack first? And that's where understanding the context allows us to prioritise and therefore make the roads as safe as possible, as quick as possible.
3: What can we learn from the data and mapping that you've been able to achieve over the last
2: decade? First of all, as we know, autonomous driving and autonomous vehicles are going to require a different kind of infrastructure than that we've got now. It'll essentially look the same but they'll have more reliance on on things like white lining parking for example ev charging because chances g- these vehicles are going to be electric they'll need to be charged and they need to be charged in an automated way as well so they need to get there and be able to do it on their own um navigation so you know it's one thing getting lost in in a, in a car as a human we can wind the window down and ask somebody how, where, where to go but that's not possible with a, a driverless car. That's going to need to be able to find its way efficiently to the next charging point or to a parking point. Otherwise, it's going to be roaming around lost, filling up the city and and towns with with vehicles that are randomly looking for somewhere to go. And that won't solve any problems for anybody. So really collecting all this data together and being able to provide infrastructure that is safer or clearer to understand from an automated point of view, from an automated car so that the decisions it makes about which lane it's got to go in, et cetera, is much easier for it. And then, as I say, understanding the the context of where certain infrastructure exists so that it can be used efficiently. So it can go and charge, charge up quickly, be available for the next journey, and get to the location it needs to be without getting lost. Because getting lost is a big, big problem to an autonomous vehicle that's running electric. You know, if it runs out of electric in the middle of the city somewhere, in the middle of the street, because it's lost, then, you know, we've got a real problem. I'm sure we'll engineer all that out. I'm sure that there are some very clever people thinking about those problems. But like all problems, they're going to be data-led. They're going to need information. So I think the more information that we collect now, the more that we make it usable... For, for these new kinds of technology, the quicker those technologies will be brought to bear and the quicker we'll see the advantages of them.
1: A real insight into the exciting future ahead of us there from Gaste CEO Steve Birdsall chatting to Adrian Tatum and rounding off this Highways Voices. Please do send your feedback to us on the Highways News website and join us again for more discussion next week. We'll be back with more on Wednesday morning. From Adrian and me, thanks for listening and we'll speak again soon. Highways Voices.
0: Join us again next week for more insights from those that matter in the industry.